This is episode 103 of the Going to Beyond the Food Show. And today we're going to talk about meal timing and the one thing you're likely not considering when it comes to timing your meal. And that's with Brody Welsh. My name is Stephanie Dodier. I'm a clinical nutritionist. And at 35, I was strapped with severe anxiety, panic attack, obesity, and my health completely collapsed. I needed solution and the journey began. Each episode of a Going Beyond the Food show, we bring you an expert or a message to help you achieve your health goal, unlock your self-confidence, and live a better life. This episode of the Beyond the Food show is brought to you by the Going to Beyond the Food Project, my baby, an online conference that is focused on teaching you how to ditch the diet mindset, transform your relationship to food, and feel good for good. I've handpicked 21 health experts that think and live outside the diet and weight loss dogma box and will help you transform your life with a radically new way of looking at your health and weight loss and help you heal your distorted relationship to food. You can register for the Going to Beyond the Food Project at goingbeyondthefoodproject.com or using the link in the show note, stephaniedoze.com slash 103. If you're listening outside of the free viewing period from November 1st to the 7th, 2017, you can still access the recording of this amazing conference via visiting my personal website or the Going Beyond the Food Project website. Now, today's episode is all about meal timing, and we're going to shatter myth and dogma around meal timing. You know I like to do that, right? Brody Welsh is the creator and the host of the Healthy Curiosity podcast, and she is a licensed acupuncturist, board-certified herbalist, Chinese medicine expert, a group coach, and a self-care strategist. I love that title. And I wanted to get her input on meal timing because I know that so many of us are exposed to the dogma of eating four to six times a day or the new concept of having an eating window where we have to restrict ourselves between this time and this time because it works so well for other people. So it must work with us. Well, one thing you notice about all of this is that there is rules. There is dictated way for you to interact with your food at specific time. And you know that I don't believe so much in rules. So what about if we weren't restricting ourselves with rules? How would we approach meal timing? That's what we're going to explore with Brody today. And it's going to likely... Well, let's just say shatter your mindset around meal timing. Now, in our last episode, that was my takeaway from the summit. So I encourage you to go back and check this out because it's going to help you as well with today's concept you're going to learn. When we are exposed to a new concept, something completely different or a lot of information, how do we deal with this information for us to get the most out of it? That's what we talked about in episode 102. So I would highly recommend you go backward and listen to that. And then listen to today's show, episode 103, about meal timing. So are you ready to do this? Let's do this. Hey, Brody, how are you? 
I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you, Stephanie? Good. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And what we want to talk about today is likely something that everybody need to know, but we don't know, which is meal timing and also what Chinese medicine can teach us about meal timing. So the very first question that everybody probably have or a good portion is, what is Chinese medicine and how does it help us around meal timing? Well, Chinese medicine is one of the oldest systems of healthcare on the planet. It's been around for thousands of years, at least 3,000 estimates up to five. And it's essentially, it's a complete philosophy. Most people probably have heard of acupuncture and acupuncture is probably the sexiest branch of Chinese medicine. But the other branches basically are all about how we can use the philosophy of yin and yang and creating balance in the organism that is us, right? Seeing ourselves as an ecosystem that's to be kept in balance and in utilizing these various tools at our disposal in order to keep that balance. And those, obviously what we do every day, our lifestyle and diet are a huge huge piece of what keeps us in balance or out of balance. So that's one of the branches, lifestyle and diet. Another branch is Chinese herbal medicine, acupuncture, as I've mentioned. Also qigong or energy exercise is another branch. Meditation, some would even include feng shui, body work, all these different things that we can do to change the energetics of what's going on in the body. And so much of Chinese medicine is rooted in Taoist philosophy, basically that ancient Taoist looking out at nature and saying, huh, you know, out there, change has a pattern. We go from day to night, the sun comes up in the east and sets in the west and like this is how it goes and we're part of nature so we actually are also living in alignment with this natural cycle same with the seasons of the year and basically uh, the philosophy that if it's found in nature it's found in our bodies as well and that health is created when we are living in balance of yin and yang and when we are hooked up with the cycles of nature yeah and that's beautiful because for those who, who watched the going to beyond the food project when i explained to you what it means to go beyond the food is what brody just explained right now is looking beyond just the chemical aspect of food and the number and the mathematics of food but looking at everything else that food brings and everything else that goes in the component of health and traditional medicine like chinese medicine or ayurveda didn't have medication back in the day. So they had to not treat, but prevent, which is the key here in Chinese medicine. Am I correct? Absolutely. There's a huge emphasis on prevention. The notion that health is actually not just like this binary toggling between health and disease, but there's actually this zone of imbalance that we move along without even necessarily knowing. And so when an acupuncturist might take your pulse or look at your tongue or ask you about different symptoms going on in your body that might not be related to each other necessarily, we're able to discern kind of what's going to happen in addition to what's already been set in motion in the body so that we can work to help regain that balance and so that everything is functioning as it should. And so a lot of the ways that we look at nature as a metaphor. So if you have insomnia and indigestion and get tired after exercise, it's like, okay, well, what thing do we need to do so that all of these symptoms get better? Like tending a garden, does this garden need more water? Does it need more sunlight? Do we need to pull some weeds? Like what needs to happen in order for there to be flourishing everywhere? And to allow the body to heal itself and to stay in balance because our body has this innate desire to be healthy and balanced. Yes, exactly. And the body will self-correct. Like we're always striving for homeostasis. And so basically if we give our bodies a chance, there's so much that they can do to yeah. heal. 
So let's talk about this big topic of meal timing. So I'll set the tone for everyone. Most of us have been prevailed to the notion that was taught to us by either the weight loss fitness industry that eating more frequently will increase our metabolism. So people are in this three to four hour window of constantly doing that. And I'll add for people battling binge eating or craving, you also been told never go hungry because if you do, you cannot trust your body. Well, and what insidious advice that is. <laughs> I know. I, that's what I was told five years ago when I was trying to lose weight. Never be hungry because you can't trust yourself. But here's a question. What does Chinese medicine tell us about meal timing? Well, it tells us a lot of things. First of all, the fact that everything in nature operates according to the cycles of yin and yang, this pulsation between, for example, night and day, dark and light, energy and rest, empty and full, inside and outside, you know, all these pairs of opposites that we think about in this world of duality. And so just like our heartbeats or our breath, right, there's the contraction and the letting go. Everything in our body functions according to this pulsation between yin and yang. And so we need to let ourselves get empty in order to receive the fullness of nourishment. And so just in general, if we never allow ourselves to get empty, essentially that what we're asking our digestive organs to do is to be working all the time. And that takes energy away from everything else that we could be spending energy on. So if we think about in Chinese medicine, the organs of digestion are the spleen and the stomach. Um, the spleen is sort of underrated in Western culture, but in Chinese medicine, they really meant kind of spleen, pancreas, and stomach as kind of the captains of the digestive team. And there's also this notion in Chinese medicine that each organ system has a period of two hours a day when it receives the most energy in the body so that our energy flows through the body and it cycles through the different organ systems. So there are times when the spleen stomach is really ready to eat and there's times when the energy is just not there. And this happens because we are mammals, right? We were meant to cook our food by daylight. We were meant to harvest our food, catch our food, gather our food in the daylight hours. And that when we smell food cooking, when we see food being prepared, the digestion begins, right? This is something that just being in touch with the process of creating, acquiring and preparing food is helpful to our digestive systems. So if we're eating, the peak period for the spleen and stomach to receive the energy is between 7 a.m. and 11 a.m. So basically just after dawn that we have a couple hours to acquire some food and that actually is gonna signal to our cortisol levels that are highest in that nine in the morning time frame. It signals to the body, you're not gonna die today. There is a naturalness to eating somewhere between 7 and 11 a.m. that signals to the body that actually cues our hunger and satiety hormones to operate according to a diurnal clock, right? Humans are not meant to be nocturnal. And so as the energy moves through the body, if the energy is most prevalent for the spleen and stomach between 7 and 11 a.m., it has the least amount of energy available to it between 7 and 11 p.m., which is why... It's not a great idea, according to Chinese medicine, to eat late at night, right? to eat after 7 p.m. Because ideally, we need to give our digestive system a rest and that the organ systems that kick in to help clean out right, the cleanup crew for the body is the liver gallbladder. And those get active 
in the middle of the night. They get active between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. So again, like if you are hosting a dinner party and somebody arrives to clean up after the dinner party, but the dinner party is still going on, it doesn't work so well. And so being able to get our bodies in sync with eating, and I'm not saying that you have to eat in the morning if you're not hungry, but the idea of eating something earlier in the day will help your body attune to its natural cycle. So if you've been eating every few hours, including snacking before going to bed or including eating a later dinner, it's very likely that you're working against your own natural metabolic potential. That's very powerful because that is in some way not what science, we think what science is telling us, which is, and many people will relate to this, Increase your metabolism by eating every three to four hours because you can manipulate your metabolism by pushing food down into your body to digest. Well, but can you? I mean, I'm actually not sure why you would want to mess with a natural process, you know, like the idea of revving one's metabolism. I find that problematic, whether or not it's even possible. What I do know is happening when you're eating every few hours is you're training your body to be fed every few hours, right? Sugar is our easiest source of calories. And so if there's readily available sugar from what we just ate a few hours ago, and that could be we've digested it into fat or whatever, but there is a ready supply of food that we can take from, which basically is there's no incentive for our bodies to go into fat burning mode. Hmm. The only time we get to do that is if there's not this ready and easy available supply of calories that we can use. So when we stretch out our meals so that we're only eating three times a day, for example, or even two times a day, if that works for your constitution, you give your body the opportunity to get into fat burning mode, which is another reason why if you're going to bed, stress hormones, hunger and satiety hormones are also really tied in with sleep and getting good sleep. And so if you're eating late, Cortisol levels don't necessarily drop and your melatonin production can be delayed. And so that can further, but, and then if you're not getting enough sleep, your leptin and ghrelin, your hunger and satiety hormones get even more out of whack. So you're getting messages for your body that you need to eat more, but at the same time, the satiety hormones have been diminished. And so this all really hooks into living in harmony with the diurnal cycle, with really hooking up with nature. So if you have been in the habit of eating every few hours and training yourself to therefore expect a new ready supply of sugar coming at the bloodstream every few hours, it may be that you think you need to eat a late night snack in order to get through the night. And that's not necessarily the case. Or sometimes people even wake up at night and eat. I find this with my patients and with the women in my coaching programs that there's, it can be a really hard habit to break because it feels like I need this. It feels like what the body is demanding. If that ends with practice, your body won't need that anymore. It's the kind of thing where like, if you want to give your body a chance to go into fat burning mode, it's really important to enable at least a 13 hour fast at night between whenever you have dinner and whenever you have your first meal of the day. And that really is the origin of the word breakfast is breaking the fast, which has been your time to burn fat, your time for the liver and gallbladder to go be the cleanup crew and clean out the digestive system, clean out the blood, detoxify the body so that you wake up and eliminate yesterday's waste, drink some water, and at some point, break your fast. You know, as much as we like to think that science knows better than us, when you pull that out of your mind and you look at this from an evolutionary perspective or just common sense, it does make sense that the biggest meal of the day should be midday when we're actually 
using the energy and have overall better energy to even process the food. Yes, absolutely. And it happens to be that science backs that up. The same number of calories eaten earlier in the day, people lose quite a bit of weight. The same amount of calories eaten delayed later in the day can result in weight gain, even if it's the same number of calories. So it's just like that meal timing can be absolutely everything in terms of whether someone is losing weight or gaining weight. There was even a recent study in 2017 from the University of Pennsylvania where the same people went through the study at different eight-week periods. So exactly the same people, exactly the same metabolism, but that when they ate between 8 a.m. and 7 p.m., they were able to lose weight and eating between 12 p.m. and 11 p.m. or like eating late, slowed down their fat metabolism, increased their weight and threw off leptin and ghrelin, threw off melatonin and cortisol. And so there is some science to back up what Ayurveda and Chinese medicine have both been talking about for thousands of years. But yes, the idea that even without the science, I would really encourage people to just run an experiment on themselves and just see, like, is what I'm doing something that is actually what my body needs and wants? Or am I swallowing a whole bunch of rules that aren't necessarily true for me? And in terms of stabilizing blood sugar, it definitely is not an overnight phenomenon. So I would encourage if you are going to try this experiment of spacing out your meals instead of eating every few hours, that you go slow, right? That perhaps the first step could be three meals a day, no snacks, you know, just see how that feels. And then with a guideline of your kitchen closes at 7 p.m. So even if you're hungry after seven, it's okay, you know, like have some herbal tea, have something that won't activate your metabolism. If you have trouble sleeping through the night, a, a hack you can use is apple cider vinegar and honey, Raw honey actually is one of those things that can help blood sugar be stable, which is kind of odd because we think of it as a refined sweetener, but it actually can be medicine in this particular case. So just a tablespoon of each in some hot water before bed can help you if you are one of those people that wakes up in the night and feels like you're having a low blood sugar condition. But to go slow, to layer on these changes, maybe do the three meals a day, no snacks for a week, and then layer on the kitchen closes at seven rule or in either order, whatever feels easiest to you. And just try it for a couple of weeks and see if indeed you find that your cravings go away, that you don't feel like you need to eat as often, and that your body starts burning fat as fuel, which feels much more stable and feels much more sustainable. So it's an opportunity to see how your body's operating is the subject of conditioning that originally came on from this dogma of science telling us that we need to rub our metabolisms and, and all that, as opposed to what might be more natural. Yeah. And I want to layer another thing that for me, when I got introduced to that a few years back, I would say probably four years ago when I went through holistic nutrition and I realized that I was eating my bigger meal at the end of the day because it was just more convenient because you wake up in the morning, I needed to get to work. I was in the rush, didn't have time to cook. So I ate a quick breakfast, had a small lunch because it was just like allowing me to be more productive at work. And then finally I would wind down at night when I had time to cook. And that's when I ate the biggest meal of the day, not because that's what I felt, but because that's what it was convenient. Oh, that's such a good point, Stephanie. I think that's really, yeah, like as a culture, we are encouraged to sit at our desks and work through lunch or eat super quickly in the middle of the day if we even take the time at all. And it's the kind of thing where just 
flipping lunch and dinner can make a massive difference for people. So it's not even changing the food. It's just changing when, you know, and it's like, so what could be easier than that? Well, except for the fact that we operate in this world where that's not necessarily encouraged. So sometimes it does require buying a thermos or, you know, making sure that something that I do as I'm preparing my morning smoothie, I'm also reheating my leftovers from dinner to take with me for lunch or, you know, like reheating a soup or something so that I can make sure that I have a really good lunch so that again, like dinner time is actually supper time and supper comes from the root words of soup and supplemental, right? So this idea that it's just a little something extra to make sure that you're not going to bed hungry. But yes, like when we're entering the yin time of day, this is the time for rest, for letting down, for winding down, for being sweet to ourselves in ways that don't involve food, that involve community, that involve being with our families or our partners, or, you know, just a chill, mellow evening activity that feels nourishing to us holistically, that's what yin is about, you know? And so entering the yin time of day, we don't need to stock up on yin in the form of food because we're not going to burn it off till the next day. And so, yes, absolutely. In terms of just making our calories work for us when we're actually active, when we need that yin to turn into the yang of the rest of your day. Mm -hmm. And culturally, I'll go even to that place because culturally I'm from a European background. And if I go back three or four generation, people ate the biggest meal of the day was the big breakfast in the morning, the bigger yes. lunch and a little sandwich or a soup at dinner, because that's when you went out and farm or worked hard yes. during the day. Mm -hmm. And then so that is not convenient in modern society. So we flip that around simply from convenience. It's fascinating when you start looking at it, like remove science and just look at it culturally, and you will find a lot of truth into what you're saying. Yes. And if you were going out to farm, it would be important to have a big hearty breakfast, right? And so if we think about Chinese culture, like spleen and stomach, not only having to do with the digestive system, but spleen and the stomach are connected to the muscles, right? So if you're doing a lot of physical work, most people were farmers when Chinese medicine was created, you know, like the, even there, it's like there's some cultural influence, but the idea that, yeah, in order to really succeed, you need to give your body considerable calories earlier in the day. Now, if you're working an office job, you might not necessarily need a big hearty breakfast, you know, that something that you can check out within the laboratory of your own body. But certainly, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine, the traditional medicine of India, there's the notion of eating the biggest meal when the sun is highest in the sky, when the pitta energy or the sort of natural fire, because digestion is a fiery process, right, of converting non-self into self, that happens around noon. And either way, it conforms with this idea that we are diurnal creatures and that whether you have more calories at breakfast or at lunch, the results are going to be the same in terms of being hooked up with diurnal cycles. The point that they both agree on is earlier, lighter dinner, which is going to enable an early to bed phenomenon, the good sleep that keeps your hunger and satiety hormones in check so that we're not misled by how much food we actually need because our bodies are just doing the best they can. And then lack of sleep is a stressor. Mm -hmm. And when we're stressed, we might not get a next meal. So, oh my God, we need to eat more. And that's not necessarily true. And so prioritizing sleep, again, in this culture of speed that prizes busyness and makes it so that we don't necessarily think about this as a priority or the most important thing we could be doing in order to maintain a healthy weight and a healthy relationship with food that doesn't feel like a struggle, that giving ourselves the ability to rest when we're tired also means that we're not going to be as likely to prop ourselves up with caffeine, sugar, with the quick carbs, whatever it is that is our go-to when we're feeling either stressed or tired. 
And that's very important for people to understand if it's the first time you're exposed to the whole yin and yang concept, that whole, some people may see it as the circle with the white and the black part. That's the fundamental of life in all area of life, both emotional and physical. It's about having some highs and some lows. And the same goes with nutrition. So now that leads me to the place of intermittent fasting. Yeah, right? because that's a new trend right now where we have eating windows and some people will go as far as eating only once a day mm-hmm. and then forcing themselves into one meal a day. For the people who participate in intermittent fasting, it's not important at what time of the day you have that meal, but that you fast for X amount of hours. So if you're doing intermittent fasting, you're going into that yin and yang. But if you're not putting it at the right time of the day, you may actually be harming yourself more. Yes, I would 100% agree with that statement. I would also add to that the fact that intermittent fasting may be wonderful for some bodies and maybe not so wonderful for others. And from a Chinese medicine standpoint and from an Ayurvedic standpoint, what the energetic traditions have to add to the picture is the fact that we have fundamentally different constitutions that we look at in Chinese medicine, wood, fire, earth, metal, and water as the five elements of nature. Ayurveda goes, that does not have wood and metal. It has air and ether. But nonetheless, the concept is the same, that each of us is born. We come into this life with a particular set of proclivities and a particular constitution that has its own strengths and weaknesses, right? You all know that person who has an iron stomach and can eat anything. We all know other people who never get a cold or a flu because their immune systems are rock solid. And so everybody's got their strengths of their constitution and their weaknesses. We also have a different amount of kind of water energy or earth energy or fire energy, et cetera. And so for certain constitutional types, like if you tend towards stable, if you tend towards strong, if you tend towards mellow, you likely have a lot of earth energy. Intermittent fasting might be perfect for you because you're grounded enough that you don't need food to create rhythm in your life. You know, that somebody else who tends towards highly active nervous system and mind that's going everywhere at once and difficulty sitting and resting, you might have not quite enough earth energy in your body. And so for you going for a 16 hour fast, especially as a woman, there's all sorts of potential for hormonal weirdness to occur. And so, again, this is one of those where like is intermittent fasting right for you? That's a question that I would ask as opposed to intermittent fasting, good or bad. The question should be intermittent fasting, good for me or bad for me. And if it is good for me, could I hook up with natural cycles to make it even better? You know, for example, 10 to six might be your window. If that's something that you're doing, or maybe it starts earlier and ends earlier that a lot of times sleeping is enables that to go well for people. So constitutionally, If you tend towards having a lot of earth energy or a lot of water energy, you might indeed be able to go for very long periods of time without eating. And that might be absolutely wrong for somebody because we're creatures of rhythm and eating at normal and predictable times can actually really help settle the nervous system. If you're someone like me who, you know, is in their head a lot and just kind of like I could maybe necessarily blow past a meal, but I find that when my body knows like it's going to be fed and my hunger may change, like the amount that I might eat at that meal may be different, but just the idea of stopping and checking in with myself and giving myself an opportunity to eat is really important and really key. Bottom line, it all comes down to this, listening to our body 
to know when to eat and what to eat, which is a whole other discussion, but what and when to eat is actually coming down to the cue we're getting from our body. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not just about hunger, but our bodies with respect to everything in life, our energy, mm -hmm. our mental focus and concentration. Chinese medicine is the original body, mind, spirit medicine. It's all hooked up there. And so being able to pay attention to what works for our lives, right? Food should be enabling our, it should not be the point of living. And it's not this moral savior, whether, you know, how in control we are of our food or, you know, et cetera. It's something that it's a tool that enables us to, to survive on the planet. And it can be used when we pay attention to the energetics of food, all sorts of other benefits can come like mental clarity, right? This eating things that don't create what we call dampness in Chinese medicine, dampness being the sort of the residue, the heavy, foggy byproduct of inefficient digestion. So if you're hanging on to extra weight, if you're hanging on to brain fog, if you have nasal congestion or discharges, or if, like if there's extra kind of unwanted moisture that you can't really make use of in the body. Paying attention to the energetics of the food that you're eating could be also really important. If you're eating a lot of cold, wet, and heavy food, that's going to lead to more cold and wet and heavy ecosystem within. And so looking at yourself through the lens of energetics, like, or if you're somebody who's constantly hot and dry and you're eating a lot of hot and spicy foods, you're likely making that condition worse for yourself. And so really like the fundamentals of eating with an eye to energetics is that again, the process of digestion in general is a fiery transformation process. So there, if you think about your digestive system as a campfire, that when you wake up in the morning, your campfire hasn't really been tended all night long. And so it needs to be stoked. So having, first of all, some warm water, some tea, something like that, especially with digestive herbs like ginger could be really lovely to wake up your digestive system. It's actually also a really good trick if you're not sure whether you're physically hungry or whether you are just mentally hungry is to have a cup of ginger tea because ginger has this digestion enhancing clarifying property of being able to kind of burn up the dross that might be hanging out in your digestive system. And so if you're indeed, if you have a cup of ginger tea and that sparks some hunger, you know, it's a time to eat as opposed to if it doesn't really do anything, then likely you're still working on whatever you ate last. So the idea that the things that digest best, if you struggle with digestive symptoms at all, gas, bloating, loose stool, constipation, acid reflux, any discomfort in the abdomen, the aforementioned mental things, uh, nasal discharge, all sorts of things that might even transcend the digestive system itself. But if you're someone that needs to pay attention to digestion, the easiest things that I can recommend are to make sure that you're eating food that is warm, cooked, and bland right? Because in that case, you're giving yourself easy to digest stuff that you don't want to douse your digestive fire with iced cold liquids, right? So that's the kind of thing where like, even if green smoothies are all the rage, if you can't digest them, you're not getting the benefit from them. So that idea of, you know, so if you are making a green smoothie, like consider throwing in some ginger, consider the ideas of making things not ridiculously complicated on the digestive system where you're adding 17 superfoods and a protein powder and yogurt and fruit. I mean, it's just a nightmare. So the idea of respecting the digestive process as a fiery process of transformation means don't smother it under blankets of cold, wet in general, and that you might need to kindle your digestive fire with herbs that activate, such as ginger, such as black pepper. 
and also you can go too far the other way. You can have things that are too hot, too spicy, too heating for the body in general, in which case cooling down the digestive system, herbs like peppermint, cilantro, things like that, that are more on the cooling end of the spectrum that can be useful as well. So Chinese medicine really provides a whole way of considering yourself, your ecosystem and your body to open up a whole new way of looking at how food could be medicine for you. And to look at a new relationship to food. So talking about cooling and warming leads me in my head to seasonality. So I'm currently in a mm -hmm. part of the world where there's extreme weather change. So there's summer at plus 30 Celsius and in the winter it's minus 30. And what I know since I've changed my relationship to food is in the summer I want more salads and cold food. Yes. And in the winter I want more soup and stew and like crock pot stuff. Exactly. And that is precisely what Chinese medicine and Ayurveda would both have you do because it's natural, right? It's natural that when it's hot outside, we want the things that are going to be cooling and detoxifying. And so when we eat with the seasons, nature gives us exactly what we need. A world of global accessible, you can have watermelon in the middle of winter and you can have, you know, we can have things wildly out of season, wildly when they're inappropriate for our bodies. So if you pay attention to what is local in the ecosystem in which you live and eat with farmers markets and eat with going to the grocery store and just asking yourself, like, what's leaping into your cart? Right now, in where I am in Oregon, we've been going from alternating between summery and wintry weeks, like just week by week. So I'll buy greens and they'll almost go bad in my fridge because I'm not making the salads that I was making a few months ago. And so being able to pay attention that, yeah, it's time to start sauteing those greens. It starts, you know, it could be the same exact food, but making it so that's more seasonally appropriate. That if we really tune into ourselves, there's very few of us who are wanting hot chocolate on a hot summer day. We have much more intelligence than we give ourselves credit for. Absolutely. And when we are in a diet mindset or in a rule abidance to any type of lifestyle dietary, then those rules prevail what our intuition is telling us, what intuitive eating would tell us because we make those rules more important than what our body is telling us. So the shift that we're talking about here is way more than leaving the rules. It's about reconnecting with your body so you can know and trust what your body is telling you from a nutrition standpoint and from everything else. Oh, that's so beautifully put. I couldn't agree more. So beyond warming and cooling and timing, which is all what our body naturally will tell us if we are intuitive enough, there's also the concept of taste in Chinese medicine that can help us cue what we need to eat. Yeah, there is so much that could be said about that. But basically, in Chinese medicine, a food has an energetic property of warming, cooling, hot, cold, neutral, uh, that spectrum. And there's also the five tastes that we think about as bitter, sweet, pungent or spicy, salty, and sour. And that each of these five tastes has a different function in the body. It has a medicinal purpose. So most of what we eat, how we know that it's food and not an herb or a poison that's going to kill us is that it has some element of sweet, right? So we might not think of meat as sweet, particularly we think of it more savory, but there is a sweetness to it. Like it's predominantly something that is going to feel like nourishment. So the taste of sweet builds the body. It's uh, incidentally, most grains are sweet. Most fruits are sweet. You know, like there's a vast spectrum of the food spectrum that can be qualified as sweet. But within that, there are other tastes 
subtle, but there, you know, that can make one food more appropriate for a particular season than another. And so each season of the year has a taste that it relates to. And each organ system of the body has a taste that is said to be medicine for it. And when exaggeration, like, so for example, salty goes to the kidney system. And if you have too much salty, it's not necessarily awesome for the kidneys. It makes them have to work really hard. But at the same time, a little bit of salty is going to be actually really good medicine. And so thinking about like, wow, do I really get any sour food in my life? You know, like, do I really get any bitter? Like there are certain tastes that are maybe harder to come by, but a meal that consists of all five tastes is said to be the most satisfying. So for example, if you're making And it also is a way that you can make friends with foods that are less familiar or that like you're trying to make friends with kale, for example, right? It's pretty bitter. But if you add a little bit of pungent to it in the form of garlic, and if you add a little bit of salt to it, or if you add a little bit of balsamic vinegar for some sweetness or, you know, like that and some sour, suddenly you have a much more appealing meal than dried leaves, you know, or like than a raw leaf. So if you're finding yourself grazing after what should have been a satisfying meal, that could just be a little checklist to run through. Like, did I get bitter? Did I get sour? Did I get salty? Did I get sweet? And did I get something that's a little pungent and upward moving? And also just thinking about the yin and the yang of taste that, as I mentioned, sweet builds the body. Sweet is the taste that builds the muscles. It gives us energy. And so if we're constantly in building mode without ever being in detoxifying, clearing mode, then there's going to be an imbalance there. And so for a lot of people, we're tired, we're deficient, we think we need sweet all the time. But thinking that actually, how much more energy would we have if we could just get rid of the garbage that's in our system, if we could kind of clean house a bit. And so the foods that the vegetables, the green things, the non-starchy veggies especially are phenomenal at cleaning and at detoxifying and letting go. And so, and of course they're lighter, right? Like sort of you can feel into lettuce as light in the same way that you can feel into a grain or a bean or a piece of meat as heavier, right? And so considering your balance of right now where I am, we're going into fall and winter. And so it's a season of building the body. It's normal to gain a little weight in the fall and winter. Let that be okay. That's totally fine because we're eating heavier food because once upon a time we would die if we didn't get enough calories to make it through the winter, through the season of scarcity. Now that said, when we come out of it in the spring is the natural time for the body to want to shed that. Like we stop eating the heavier foods, the heavier meats, and we start eating a bit more raw foods. We start increasing our vegetables. The taste of sour astringes the liver and supports the secretion of bile, which is going to help us digest, help us basically clean house in the spring. And then in the summer, It's a season where we could be eating the lightest all year round. And so making sure that, yeah, eating with the seasons, eating what is seasonal, eating a balance of the taste, there's so much more we could go into it. And also eating the parts of the plant that resonate with the cycle of growth that you're wanting to promote or where you are in the cycle of life. So there's so much that Chinese medicine has to offer. But just really for today, what I'm hoping people take away is just the notion that each taste has a different medicinal function, talks to a different organ system in the body, and to pay attention that it's okay to listen to that message from your body of like, if all you want is tahini for a week, like, okay, like incorporate that into, you know, there's got to be something about that pungent or about that greasy or about that heavy or like something about the quality or the energetics of the food could also tell you about what you're missing in life. You know, that if you're wanting a bunch of heavy stuff, well, maybe you need to rest. Maybe you need to go take an Epsom salt bath, you know, versus if you're craving a lot of spicy or a lot of light stuff, like maybe go for a run, maybe go do some jumping jacks, you know, give yourself something that correlates with that. What am I trying to get from food that I could be getting from life?
And that is why our cravings are body messages. So when I came up with this whole concept of body messages is because I am from a background of holistic nutrition, which includes Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. And knowing what those traditional medicine has taught us, we need to listen to the cues and the hungers and the desire that we have because what our body is trying to do is come back in balance by using the energetic of food. Yes, exactly. And that is why when we obey to rules that are set by a diet, we miss all of that. And yes, ladies, if you have been obeying to rules for many years, there will be a re-education period where you may not be able to trust your cues until you get your body back into a space where it can actually cue you for the right reason. So what would be a tip for you, for people who are really disconnected from taste and season and timing to get back into that place or a process that you would encourage people to do? Well, a few things. I think I mentioned already that just try one small step in the direction of meal spacing and close your kitchen by seven. Another thing that I would suggest is to actually go to the grocery store or to the farmer's market. Actually, farmer's market is best because then you're automatically getting something seasonal. But just go and look around the produce section and just ask yourself, like, what just looks good to me? If all the rules didn't apply, what would I gravitate towards? Or if you're somebody who likes the recipe planning or looking at food online in some way, that similar thing, browse a cookbook, browse an online recipe site that has foods that eats whatever your plan for your way of eating, whether you're vegetarian or paleo or whatever, go to a site that has a collection of recipes and just look and just see like, Ooh, that sounds good to me. Yeah. I want chili tonight. Yeah. I want, you know, and just think brainstorm right down. What does my body feel like eating this week? today and just feel into it a little bit. Just give yourself the space to reflect on what that might look like. If you're out of sync with hunger and satiety in general, I recommend that that a lot of times our cues to eat are actually cues to hydrate, especially if it's colder weather, we don't tend to drink as much water. So I encourage getting a thermos or a, a hydro flask or something that keeps its heat and putting warm water in it where you sip on throughout the day and that you always have readily available so that you can have a dialogue with your body as to whether it's really hungry or whether it actually just needs like it's like a wilty plant and it just needs to perk up a little bit. And so those could just be a couple of simple things people do. Yeah. And the last piece of the taste is make sure that there is different food with different flavor into your plate. And I want to bring up one of my favorite food, which is fermented food. Yes. Right. What taste would that be? That'd be sour. Predominantly sour, right? It's obviously going to have some subtaste depending on what you've used, but that's a fabulous way of supporting our digestive fire, supporting our spleen and stomach. It's very active, right? Because it's supporting this yang of the digestive system. And so that can be lovely to have a few forkfuls of something fermented with your meals. A great way of getting sour. Yeah, because like realistically, we're never going to have, or I can't think of having a full plate of sour. It's always in smaller quantity, right. which is the prescription for fermented food. It's a small quantity multiple times a day. 
Exactly. Right. Or you might have a grapefruit or something, you know, like it's sour, but you're not going to binge on 10 of them, right? It's like, you don't need that much. And so, and similarly, yeah, like you can also tell us about portion control. If we're paying attention to the energetics of something like nuts, nuts and seeds are very dense. They're very oily. It takes a lot of digestive fire to hack into them and to get the nutrition out into the body because we're not what we eat, we're what we digest. And so you don't need more than a handful ever, you know, like that's what the body can handle is about a handful. And so just consider that because of its nature, right, that things that are light that, you know, as opposed to heavy things that are not dense with fat and with protein are things that you can have a lot of, right? You can have a ton of, of salad usually, you know, like it's a far more quantity because we're thinking about the energetics of it. That's a brilliant, that was one of the A plus discussion that I've had on this podcast so far. And I really appreciate that. And I hope for the listener that you're taking a lot away from this. And I know you have something for the listener to go even a step further with you. I do. I've got a little tip sheet about or a checklist about stoking your digestive fire. So if it's interesting for you to think about how knowing a bit more about the energetics of food and some of these basic principles that Chinese medicine and Ayurveda agree on in terms of what's going to help digestion and therefore what's going to help optimal health, energy and metabolism, that you can go to brodywelch.com. That's Brody with an I-E and Welch with a C-H. And the URL is brodywelch.com forward slash kitchen or sorry, I am. <laughs> I can put it in the show note as well. So maybe easier for everyone. Absolutely. I'll make sure you get that. And the one last thing I wanted to mention as far as digestion and optimizing it is that the spleen and stomach is also related to the mind in Chinese ah. medicine. And we can only really digest one thing at a time. So it's really important to eat without digesting problems, to eat without digesting the news, to eat without ideally like just consuming anything else mentally. And when you are giving yourself a distraction-free eating environment, you're going to be far more tuned into how much food you actually need whether you're eating the food your body actually wants or whether it's time to say no thank you or to add a condiment that makes it something different, that makes it a little more bitter, sour, salty, sweet, because you're not a machine and that's going to vary from day to day. So giving yourself one thing at a time to digest can be really important in terms of recreating this body, mind, belly, intuition, eating from the inside out that Stephanie so emphasizes. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness. Mindfulness eating is what Brody is talking about right now. And this concept is not new and it's not modern. It's been taught in all the traditional medicine that are out there in the world today. Food was a place of socialization and love and taking the time to enjoy the food, not to do a million things at the same time, which is what modern society is teaching us to do. So there's some repatterning to do again there. Yeah. So I will put in the show note at stephaniedozi.com slash 103, which is the show number of today. And then you will have the URL in there to access the incremental document that Brody has created for you to get in tune more with traditional intuitive eating, which I think is super important for all of us to go down this path. Thank you very much for having been with us today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. And if I can be of service to anyone in terms of getting back to eating intuitively, please be in touch. Let me know how I can help. Awesome. Thank you very much. 
there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I enjoy recording this episode with Brody. Now, if you did learn something, you enjoyed it, or you want to simply share with the world, there's a couple things you can do. Share right from your recording device by pressing the share button and share it with somebody that you know needs to hear this information or tag me and Brody on Facebook and Instagram and let us know how this show impacted you. And also don't forget, you have until the end of the day today, if you're listening live on November the 12th, Sunday, to pick up the free talk on the Going to Beyond the Food project or your discounted package for the upgraded package, which will allow you to re-listen to all the talk ongoing. Now, if you're listening outside of those window of free viewing, you can also pick up the recorded version by going on the website. Now we have a great show coming up, episode 105 with Deborah Atkinson. We're gonna talk about the six menopause myth that prevents you from living a thriving life. Now listen to me. This is not only for women that are currently experiencing menopause. All you younger women, I want you to take note and listen to this episode because it will change the way you are perceiving yourself going into menopause. And just like Deborah will teach us, the power of our mind on how menopause unfolds has much more impact than your genetic. So you got to come and listen to this one. So I'm so glad that you were here with our guest Brody today. I thank you, love you, and see you on the next show.